I had somebody last week who said they have had trouble getting in. So I thought I'm going to watch for that person. Let's see if they make it. I told them to look, call me if they're having trouble. Usually, usually Zoom's pretty, pretty good. Oh, there she is. She's the first one. Thank you to everyone joining the webinar. We will just get started in a minute or so. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to today's Journal Club webinar. My name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of the Society for Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, and glad you're joining us for the presentation today. Um, 
little bit of housekeeping to get us started. I will put the slides for today's presentation in the chat block. Um, so please download those and follow along with the presentation. Uh, we will take questions at the end of the presentation. So please type your questions uh, in the chat box or the Q&A box uh, so we can moderate them to our presenter. And when I close the webinar today, there's a short survey. We appreciate your feedback on this session as well as any suggestions for future webinars. And then watch for an email follow-up on Wednesday of this week uh, that'll have a link to the recording, the CEU certificate that you're earning for your attendance, as well as uh, the handout for today. So I will turn things over to our moderator, Dr. Kristen DiFilippo, is a teaching assistant professor at the University of Illinois. Thank you, Rachel. Today, our speaker is Dr. Masterson. He is the Broadhurst Career Development Professor for the Study of Health Promotion and Disease Prevention at the Pennsylvania State University. He directs the Health, Ingestive Behavior, and Technology Laboratory there. His work focuses on using technology to better understand eating behavior and also how technology is currently used by corporations to influence our eating behavior. Today, Dr. Masterson will be discussing the development and testing of the Immersive Virtual Alimentation and Nutrition Application, an Interactive Digital Dietitian. He will demonstrate its effectiveness in comparison to both digital and in-person delivery and improving knowledge about portion size and energy deficiency. I want to thank Dr. Masterson for joining us and sharing his work with us. At this point, I can pass it off to him. Cool, thanks. Yeah, um, excited to be here uh, to talk to you guys today. Uh, I think the next slide I have is just disclosure. So I have you no... Know, conflicts of interest in relation to this presentation, at least. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I'm gonna be talking about our program, the Immersive Virtual Alimentation and Nutrition Program, which is a mouthful. We basically came up with that um, to get like a cute little acronym of IVAN. Um, <laughs> so we'll go through what that is, uh, how we developed it, uh, what we've kind of done with it, uh, those types of things. So uh, yeah, so this is just a little bit about me, where I'm at right now. I mean, Kristen already gave that introduction so we can move on. Um, to what my lab is all about. So in my lab, we are generally interested in cued eating behavior, which is just, you know, anything you interact with that acts as a cue that leads you to seek out eating behavior. So one of the, the major focal points um, is of my lab is food marketing, which is the corporation part of what Kristen was mentioning. Um, so we look at a lot of, at food marketing, how it influences purchase behavior, eating behavior, those types of things. Um, and so you can kind of see that over here on, on this side. Uh, in the lab, though, what we do a lot of is um, reactivity to food um, and altering meals to, to increase food intake or decrease food intake, right? Um, alongside of that, we do fMRI work to look at how changing cues, changing images, changing marketing, those types of things can um, alter brain response and how that's tied to some of these behavioral changes we see. So trying to get at the me mechanistic things. Um, but lab studies are uh, a little bit contrived. Um, what we're doing in the lab, what we're giving to people, the, the environment that they're in is not totally representative of what their actual behavior would be or, or, or what they might do in the real world, right? And so one of the goals of our lab is to, to continue to measure these things in the lab because it gives us very important insights into very controlled situations. 
Um, but to move to an individual level, we have to really start to get at people's behavior outside of the lab. And um, so that's where we look at uh, using technologies like the internet, um, EMA, those types of things to kind of measure and track people's behaviors. But what we're going to talk about today is it's right here in between kind of our laboratory studies and free living studies um, in, in the VR world. And um, the reason uh, that we use VR, and, and I'll touch on this in, in a little bit too, is that it gives us kind of the control of a laboratory setting, but we're able to immerse people into worlds that are more ecologically relevant, right? So you can see um, a picture of like one of our virtual buffets where we can put somebody in a restaurant setting. It has the same look and feel of this restaurant um, while they're sitting in our, our lab, right? Um, so, uh, so yeah, so today we're going to be focusing on the immersive part of all of this. Um, so just a, just a quick background of how I got started working, um, in immersive technologies at the end of my PhD program, I actually teamed up with some researchers at the university of Maryland, Baltimore college. Um, and they, uh, are a group of psychologists and, and media artists that were interested in developing uh, a virtual buffet. And so we started working with them on um, answering or asking the right questions, um, picking the right foods, setting up the environment in, in a way that made sense. Um, and so with them, we designed a virtual buffet. And so what you can see here on the left side is um, the actual dining hall at UMBC. And then you, on the right, you can see our virtual dining hall um, that, that was designed. And um, in our original studies, what we did is we actually just compared um, what people were picking in the two different environments, right? In the real world versus our, our virtual buffet. So we, so we had 35 people do both conditions. They did both the virtual dining hall and, and the real. And what we found is that there was a really good, strong agreement between what people were picking in our virtual world compared to um, the real world, even though we didn't have really like any control over what was being served in, in the real dining hall at any given time, right? Um, and so what this kind of told us is that people are doing, like responding similarly in VR that they do um, in the real world. We just completed, and I'm not gonna go into detail on this, but I, I'm just really excited about these results. So I thought I'd bring it up. <laughs> um, so we took it a step further and we said like, well, can we, um, do we see similar uh, psychological manifestations that we see in the real world in, in, in a virtual world, right? So one of the most powerful um, nutrition or food-related cues that you can alter with somebody is the portion size of their meal, right? So very robust findings that if you increase the, the portions that you serve somebody, um, they tend to eat more, right? And so in the virtual world, we said, well, can we alter the amount that we're showing people um, when they first pick up um, food out of our bins, right? So essentially how much is on their spoon and does that initial amount of food that they're seeing, does that have an influence on how much food they pick? And we wanted to take it a step further and say, well, if they pick more food, they should also eat more food in, in the virtual world or not in the virtual world, in the real world, right? So we actually had people do two conditions where they would come in and do the virtual buffet. And one time they would scoop the food, they'd get like a typical amount of food on their, their serving um, utensil and then they could increase it or decrease it and then after they uh, selected a meal they would go and eat a standard laboratory meal 
uh, with standard portion sizes. On the next time that they would come in, we would do like a large portion condition, right? So when they pick up the food, it would default to a much larger portion than normal. They could still adjust it, but it would just start at a larger size. Um, and then in the real world, they would do like a large portion meal, right? And what we found is that the effect of the portion size was similar across the two conditions. So what you can see here on this little graph is just how much food they consumed in the laboratory meal. And you can see that there is a significant change um, by portion size, right? So in the standard condition, um, they're eating you know, below 500 calories. And in the large condition, they'd be eating above 500 calories. Um, and the difference between those two is about 35.6%. In the virtual buffet, in the standard condition, they were selecting about a uh, 1,000 grams of food, whereas in the large condition, um, they were selecting much more than that, about 1,400 um, grams. And But that difference, the percent difference is at 36.1%. And so those differences are very, very similar. Um, and we actually did a correlation between what people were picking um, in the virtual world and what they were eating in the, the laboratory meals and found a very strong intra-individual correlation, meaning that like people that responded to this portion size effect in VR were re responding similarly, similarly to the portion size effect within a meal. And so to us, this is really great evidence that what people do in VR, it, at least in relation to food behaviors is very similar to what we would expect in a laboratory experiment. Um, and so that opens up just so many doors about what we can do with this technology in understanding eating behaviors um, and, and food selection behaviors that, that we haven't been able to do in the past. And so what, um, so it, my lab has developed a series of tools. Um, so one of those being that IVR buffet um, we have another one that we're not going to talk about today, which is a, an immersive virtual restaurant in which you can actually be immersed in a restaurant and eat actual food um, that we're very excited about. But what I'm going to talk to you guys about today is our uh, immersive virtual dietitian um, program. And so rather than just having you talk about it, um, this will give you uh, this video will give you a nice overview of Ivan um, and then we'll, we can talk a, a little bit more in detail about it. Nutrition is essential to our health. Registered dietitians currently rely on didactic tactics such as pamphlets, handouts, and presentations to help inform their clients and patients. Even though nutrition facts labels can present consumers with a lot of information about their food, many still struggle with understanding and applying concepts such as portion size and calorie density of foods to their planning and eating behaviors. Virtual reality can serve as a potential solution by visualizing volumes of food in a scale that is true to life. Additionally, virtual foods can be picked up, examined, and even cut, providing a way for participants to learn about foods in a meaningful way. This technology allows users to be present in different environments, such as a virtual office for learning and testing food principles, or a virtual kitchen for practical application of new knowledge. In the Immersive Virtual Alimentation and Nutrition, or IVIN project, Users are guided by a virtual registered dietitian through eight learning modules and a skills practice module. Upon entering the experience, users are led through a quick tutorial space to get familiar with mechanics and controls, such as summoning and using the knife to cut virtual foods into portions. 
Throughout the different modules, users are challenged to assemble meals, all while comparing calorie density and portion sizes of different foods. The VR headset grants users access to experiences that would be difficult to replicate in a typical dietitian's office, such as cutting and interacting with a wide variety of foods. The tool also helps researchers and clinicians by collecting data in real time about the user's behaviors and ability to apply knowledge. Past research has already demonstrated how VR food models elicit similar physiological and psychological responses to real-world food, which makes VR an optimal tool for tracking user responses and behaviors. Participants that have tested the IVAN application so far include students, researchers, and educators in the field of nutritional sciences. Feedback has been positive as the tool has been regarded by experts as highly relevant, applicable, and effective through creating an environment where users can explore, hypothesize, experiment, and construct. Okay, so that's our little video. So um, that gives you kind of like an overview of Ivan and, and what it is. We're going to look at a few of the modules and some of our updated modules um uh in, in just a minute but um i kind of want to just start with like what was our goal with this program um like what were we trying to accomplish um one of the things is we we had our virtual buffet which was a great data collection tool but we started thinking like what would an intervention look like with um virtual reality there's a lot of ways we could go with it and we so we stuck with this um but one of the thing, one of the big questions that always comes up and, and that we had to kind of deal with uh, or think about while we were developing this is what what were we trying to do? And specifically, um, the, the big question with the RDs on my team is, were we trying to replace registered dietitians in, in this clinical sense, right? And the the big the big point that we want to make here is no, we weren't trying to replace anything. What we were trying to do was offload the repetitive education delivery from RDNs in the clinic where they spend a lot of time um, going over similar presentations, PowerPoints, and those types of things, and then actually provide a unique experience to um, anybody interacting with the program that's not typically possible, right? So for, for this example, um, in a lot of dietitians' offices, they'll use those little plastic food models. Um, but in this case, we can actually um, vary those food models. We can cut them. We can pull them apart. We can weigh them. We can alter them. Um, like uh, we can have this very unique experience that would be very difficult to have in a clinical setting. Um, the other thing with this is designing scalable education programs that could be deployed remotely. And we'll take a look at that in one of our first studies, how we did that. Um, and then uh, designing a program that allows us to collect meaningful data that we could provide to clinicians. Um, so you can imagine, uh, you know, like when a clinician is actually meeting with the client, sometimes it can be really difficult to understand, like, are they comprehending the, the uh, information that you're giving them, right? Do they understand? The concepts? Do they understand how to apply it? Um, is there an issue with certain types of foods or, or different things like that, right? Well, in a program such as this, we can um, provide the, the, the clinical educator um, an output that would give them some idea of like, what did the participant pick up on? What did they struggle with? What could you talk to them about um, now that you've made it through the educational material? And so um, that was like the, the second big um, goal for us there. Um, so why use VR compared to other modalities? In this case, we're saying like, why would we do an immersive experience 
um, which is much different than doing a desktop experience. Like, why can't we just do this um, like with a with a mouse or why not just do an in-person um, version of this? Uh, and so there's a few things that go along with that. One is that in immersive virtual reality, we can represent the food in a one-to-one -one scale, meaning that um, the foods visually appear um, as the correct size, more or less, right? Whereas like if you're doing a, a, a desktop application or a phone application, you're limited by the resolution of the screen, right? So for example, I have like a very big screen in front of me. So some objects I could um, present realistically to myself, but if I'm using my cell phone, my screen's gonna be, you know, six inches or whatever, right? And so um, it, it, you're limited by the, the tools that are around you. The second major point is that we can interact with the food realistically. So like you saw in that example, um, people actually can cut the foods, they can pick them up, move them onto plates, put the, the plates on the scales, um, get information about them that way. Um, but the final thing is that you can provide that realistic experience of, of interacting with the food and having it the right size, but you can also do these abstract things, right? So for example, with those scales um, in the little video, we're actually able to provide people with more information than we would if we were to do that in real, uh, real life, right? So scales in the real world can only tell us like the gram weight, but we're able to actually break down what's the gram weight, how many calories are in that portion of food. Um, what does that turn? What does that mean in terms of like calories per gram, right? So we can start to provide them with a lot more information. We can also have some abstract experiences and I'll, I'll be demonstrating one of those um, shortly. And those abstract experiences can be meaningful in a way that maybe a, a realistic experience can. And so we kind of get the best of both worlds of like being able to, to provide a very high quality experience to individuals while getting feedback for the clinician, uh, having the realism that we need um, to, to train people um, while also being able to provide abstract experiences that they couldn't have anywhere else. Um, and so, yeah, so that's where our idea for Ivan came out. Um, and so I'm just going to move ahead into what our educational mo modules are. So you can see them listed out here. This is in our paper that is uh, in JNEB, um, which is one of the GEM papers from last year. And so you can see the different modules that we have here. We really designed this educational material around material that we already knew was high quality. So we actually contacted Dr. Barbara Rolls um, and obtained some of the material uh, that she had used in some of her weight loss trials for NIH. And then what we did is we had RDs on my team convert that material and come up with different activities and ideas that were related to that. So uh, this is a, a list of our older modules. We've updated several of them since uh, then. And so I'm gonna walk you through what some of these modules actually look like um, in the program. Um, and, and so you'll get some of the audio and, and, and some of the things. So this was our, uh, originally our introduction to portion size was just like a PowerPoint where we actually just showed like the same handout that people have seen forever where it shows like portion sizes have changed over the years and, and it was just a little graphic. And um, so in our updated version, we came up with a more interactive way of doing that. So I wanted to show that one. This is the size of an order of French fries from 20 years ago. These fries would have been about 200 calories. The normal order of French fries now has almost 500 calories. 
Go ahead and point to the french fry button on the table to serve yourself french fries, one at a time. Do this until you have put 500 calories of french fries on the scale. As you can see, this is a lot of fries. So yeah, so this is a good example of like one of those abstract experiences that would you could do this in in uh in a in an office, but um it not in quite the same way. So you saw that like um you see the small portion of fries and then um that they have to fill up the plate with like a typical portion of fries that you order today, right? And you could see the individual they were pressing the button and they got to about 400 calories and they paused for a second kind of like wow this is a lot and they're waiting for the scale to update and like okay I have to keep going, right? And um we actually forced them to press that button one at a time um to really like hit home that principle of like this is a lot, right? Like it it's taking a while to get there especially when you see the comparator on the other side, right? So that's what we're kind of talking about is like this abstract experience of having to push that button over and over to generate the, the, the amount of food that they're seeing um, can like really uh, make a, kind of like a meaningful connection to, to the learner. Um, all right, so this is, uh, now we'll just go through a series of modules um, kind of showing, th these are shorter videos, I think, uh, showing a, a few of the different activities. Now, let's work through an example of how you can change the calories in a food without changing its size. On the table, you can... So this now, is my grad assistant uh, just kind of rushing through this, and they drop a potato. But um, So in this when module, what you're seeing water, is that they're steaming potatoes and, and talking water, about seasoning them versus um, frying those now, potatoes. Now, steamed potatoes may look plain, but lots of flavor can be added with spices that don't add calories. Go ahead and put the fried potatoes on the scale. As you can see, because now let's Oops. work through an example Sorry. of how you can change the these. calories in a um, I just wanted to show right here at the end. Um, so yeah, so this is an example of our smart scale where it's able to hold information for the individual. They're able to see the weights, they're able to see the calorie density, the number of calories that are present, right? And um, so it's taking them through this idea of like, how does fat being added to something increase the calorie density compared to like steaming it? What's that gonna do, right? Um, in this next task, I'm gonna turn the sound off on this one. Um, so in this one, they're just uh, sorting foods. And so they're given different things. So here, chips versus apples, they're just asked to like sort these, which one's high calorie, which one's low calorie. They can see different information on the screen as they're doing that. Um, so it's just a, a task to get them accustomed to identifying these high and low calorie foods. And they get different options for doing that. Um, we do a combination. Again, I'm, I'm just gonna turn the sound off on this really quick. Uh, so a different combination of doing portion size and calorie density together. So how do these two things work and how can you mix the, the different um, options together? And 200 calories of the fried potatoes onto another plate. When so in this case, what it's showing is it's having them do um, different calorie loads. So 200 calories of steamed potatoes versus 200 calories of French fries, right? And so it's trying to hit home that idea of like with 
larger portions of sm uh, of lower energy food, you can consume more, right? And introducing that to them. All right, then let's look at this one really quick. We will give each food a number of how many calories per bite it will give you. A higher number means more calories per bite, and a lower number means less calories per bite. This number will appear on the screen as the calorie density. And in this video, uh, sorry, in this task, what they do is they actually put those two plates on the scales and it gives them the information about the plates up on the screen. And so again, it's starting to get them accustomed to seeing on the plate, like what is going on. Like you're able to have much more food if you include lower calorie options. Um, and one of the, the main take homes here is that you don't have to cut down on foods that you like, uh, or sorry, you do, you can cut down on foods you like without eliminating those foods. Let's walk through an example. Go ahead and serve yourself a meal of the burger and fries on one of the plates. Notice how many calories this meal is and notice the amount of space these foods take up on your plate. While this meal will fill you up with calories, it may not keep you full for very long. Now, let's put together a meal that includes these foods, but that will help us stay fuller longer. Leave the plate with the burgers and fries as it is. They will stay locked on that plate. This time, cut the burger and fries on the left in half and put them on the empty plate. Then put all the broccoli and the apple onto Do you see how much more food you were able to eat by cutting back on high calorie foods and foods with lots of calories? Let's walk through. And then here's one of those abstract activities that I was mentioning earlier. Here are our potatoes again. As you now know though, while the size of the potatoes is the same, the fried potatoes have a lot more calories per bite. Watch this. These blocks now represent the calories you would be eating from each of these potatoes. You can see that if you ate the same amount of french fries as you did steamed potatoes, you would be consuming many more calories. Now, and so I didn't, I didn't uh, make us watch through this, but the activity is actually that they have to move each one of those blocks onto the scale um, from the fried potatoes. Um, and so again, it's trying to get them to think about like having to move so many blocks through the space. Um, so again, a very like abstract activity where we're actually taking volumes of food and converting them to their calories um, and, and doing that direct comparison and then making them do an activity to really like hit home how many um, extra calories are actually present there. Right? Um, and then this is a calorie target practice. I think it only, sh this video only shows the single and multi-item, but in this case, what we've done is we've introduced portion size, we've introduced energy density, and then we're trying to get people to estimate the caloric content of different uh, pieces of food. So we have them actually start with just single items, um, like chicken, and then it'll bring up the burger or the fries or whatever. Um, and then later they have to do multi-items. So instead of the food popping up on the plate, all the foods will pop up onto the plates next to it and they have to com uh, combine the foods um, and hit a calorie goal. Um, so really trying to uh, get them to think about how they're putting these combinations of foods together. But here is our single item example. So what you can see is uh, it started with a certain amount of chicken and they're trying to hit a 150 calorie goal. 
and it gives them quite a range of like buffers so they don't have to get it exactly right it gives them like 10 calories either way so now they're trying to hit 200 calories of fries so what would that look like And this is again my research assistant who's done this a lot of times so they know how to cut it exactly right <laughs> but most people start cutting just a little bit and then they realize they have to cut it down quite a bit to hit the calorie goal um and again just to to remind you um it, it's even a little bit hard to see here because we're looking at a 2d version of this but when you're immersed these foods and plates are actually realistic size and so they're actually practicing with um foods that are the correct size um and so it's not as abstract as it looks even here on the screen. Okay, so uh, that should give you a good idea of like some of the educational materials and like what's going on um, in there. Um, so, but, you know, it, this is mostly just me and uh, the two RDs on my team developing this stuff. And so is it any good was our first question. Like, is it worth putting more time? Is it worth trying to test out like what we're doing here? And so one of the first things that we did is we recruited seven nutrition and education experts to evaluate this initial version of the program. Um, so these were uh, mostly nutrition educators um, located on campus. Um, and we uh, so we we took this to them um, and did a, a, a kind of a mixed method survey. So uh, we did what we call a heuristic survey, which is we asked them about certain aspects of the program specifically. And we also did a semi-structured interview where we kind of took them through and recorded their feedback about what they thought about everything that they were looking at, seeing the educational material. So you can see all of our heuristics. And again, this is uh, available in the paper if, if you're interested in looking at it. Um, I've just highlighted two here, um, which are the highest ranked and the lowest ranked um, scores. So our highest ranked one was the utility of the program. So all of our educators felt that the program provided some utility to users improving nutrition education broadly. Um, our lowest one, though, was support for learning. And so what we learned from that is it wasn't always clear what the user needed to do. And the um, aspects in the environment or the instructions that were given were not always super clear. And so one of the things that we were able to do is go back and, and improve that. So um, give better visuals um, to the participant, give more clear instructions, um, those types of things. So for example, um, these are some of the actual verbal responses that we got. The length of the audio was too long. Um, so like I said, in that first um, first module where we they were pushing the button for the fries, that was originally just a PowerPoint up on the screen. And so it was really boring to just be in this really cool virtual environment and just sit there and look at a PowerPoint presentation. And so there was a few activities like that where we said, okay, can we make this more interactive? Can we improve the interactivity of this? Um, another one was if you didn't get the instructions the first time, it wouldn't repeat. And so there'd just be a huge delay and, and you'd have to like actually restart the module. There were also some things where like uh, the instructions didn't have visual cues or different things like that. So, so we really worked to update that. Um, so after we got this feedback from the experts, we looked at, we, we you know, went to try and test um, and we happened to start to try and test this right as the pandemic was in full swing. Um, so everything was locked down. We weren't able to do any sort of research on campus. Um, and so uh, that was bad, but it actually turned out to be uh, advantageous for us because it actually pointed out one of the main benefits of doing research like this 
um, in, in these virtual worlds is that we were actually able to do a full study unsupervised um, remotely with VR. Um, so we had access to some databases of individuals who had the, these headsets at their house um, that were interested in participating in research, similar to, you know, like uh, resources like MTurk or Prolific Academic, where you can crowdsource um, research participants for online studies. And um, so we said, okay, let's reach out to some of these people and see if we can have them test this program for us virtually. So we deployed this program, our, our Ivan program, um, in 45 users, but we needed a control condition. And so the control condition that we came up with was to do uh, this virtual immersive experience, but where you just do the PowerPoint version of it. And so you're still immersed, you're still in the virtual world, um, but you're basically in the dietitian's office and you're watching the PowerPoint on the screen while she talks to you. Um, and so there was essentially no interaction versus our fully interactive version where you're doing all these activities. Um, but I, I wanna stress that the educational content which again, we took from validated studies um, such as Dr. Roll's um, uh, weight loss trials. Like, so we know the content is actually very good already. Um, we just have the PowerPoint versus the interactive version. And that's what we were testing these individuals. And what we saw was that um, both applications improved the knowledge of our participants, which is great. That's good news. It, it's what we would, uh, uh, anticipate. So this blue line down here is our interactive participants. And, and one thing you'll notice is that they started out at a lower um, knowledge uh, portion size self-efficacy level. And um, uh, so they were a little bit lower than the, the passive group. So this PowerPoint group, right? But what you can see is um, in both cases, they increased their knowledge over, over time. And um, so, so that was good. Um, for uh, us. And the other thing that we asked though was, what did they think about these programs? Like, did they think it was intuitive? Um, did, did they think that it helped them? And one of the subscales that we gave them was about the interactivity of the application. And so to, to no surprise, our interactive version was rated as being much more interactive than the non-interactive version. And you can see what we actually uh, rated this here. Oh, excuse me. So you can see that the, the difference was significant between the two groups. Um, and what was asked in this subscale was uh, these questions right here. So the ability to change um, and interact with the 3D objects allows me to learn better. The 3D objects makes my learning more motivating and interesting. Um, being able to manipulate objects makes it more motivating and interesting and being able to manipulate the objects enhances my understanding. Um, so they, the uh, participants in the interactive category essentially felt that our, our application was more interactive, but they felt that this interactivity enhanced their learning. Now, we only had like a one-time measure of, you know, their self-efficacy improving or not. And um, so, uh, you know, we don't have like, does this interactivity really improve it long-term or help with retention or, you know, different things like that that we're interested in now, but it gave us kind of face validity that like, at least the activities that we designed and what we were doing didn't hamper the, uh, the learning process, right? Because we had abstracted a lot of these principles 
Um, and so, so that is a net win for us overall is that we're able to retain kind of this improvement in knowledge um, while making it more engaging and, and more uh, fun, essentially. Okay, so uh, now both from our educator standpoint and this initial 45 uh, participant evaluation, we also learned a few things. In, in both cases, we uh, tried to ask for feedback on what can make the program better. Um, so a few things that came out. One is people wanted it to be shorter and more simplified. We were still using terms that were too complicated for people. They were getting lost in some of the instructions or some of the modules took too long. So one of the things that we did is we went back to our scripts and we um, really worked on shortening them um, and cutting down on the, the, the language in them. So um, like bringing the language down to like a third grade reading level um, and then uh, taking them from like, you know, two to three minute long modules to, to 30 seconds, right? Getting our point across very quick. Uh, the other thing is that people wanted to know how they were doing. Some of the modules you're doing the activity, but it's not really tracking or helping you get better. So we wanted to be able to provide them feedback loops that would say like, you're doing good at this um, or you did bad at this <laughs> this time. Let's give you a chance to try it again in a second and see if you can improve, right? The last one um, is kind of funny. You notice the avatar in some of the screen, uh, in some of the videos and, and, and not in others, right? So the avatar originally sat in the office. She was the digital dietitian, right? So, so she would sit there. Her, she was uh, based off of my, uh, one of my uh, postdocs um, who did all the, the voice lines for her and everything like that. Um, so she would sit there and then uh, give you your instructions and then you would start doing this module and the module might take like two to five minutes to work through the whole activity, right? And then this avatar would just sit there unblinking and just stare at you the whole time. Um, people didn't like that. <laughs> it's very um, unfun for them is, is what we, we learned. And so what we ended up doing, as you saw in some of those module videos, is that we placed the the digital dietitian onto an iPad in the virtual environment. That way she'll call in, um, talk to you and then pop out. Um, so that actually opened up a few things for us. One is that we, it opened up a lot of space. And then it also made us realize that we might not have to be in this office environment or have things set up exactly as we did with uh, when we were with the dietitian. Um, and so we're interested in, in looking into that aspect of as well of like, uh, do people learn better in different environments? Does it help to have this kind of structured office environment or would, would there be different ways of doing that? Um, as well as like, would different avatars be um, more approachable for certain populations, those types of things. So there's a lot to um, dig into there. Um, but for us, the, the next big thing with uh, being able to test on campus again was, okay, how does this delivery work in comparison to actually getting face-to-face um, instruction, right? So uh, we wanted to test against human delivery. And so what we did is we uh, took uh, 44 participants, half of them were placed into the VR um, delivery group, and half of them were put into the face-to-face uh, the -face delivery group. And so um, when they would come in, we would uh, pretty much do the same thing. We do like a pre-test with them, then they would either put the VR headset on and go through the Ivan experience, or they would sit down with one of our registered dietitians and they would just go through the materials in, in, in like a pamphlet style, right? So where the, 
the educator would basically run through the same script with them, um, but do it um, with little uh, flip charts, right? And so what we found is that going through our VR experience elicited um, better uh, changes in, in portion size self-efficacy um, following the Ivan experience compared to the in-person delivery. So that kind of suggested to us that we're on the right track, that, that we're seeing the, um, the performance increases in our program that, that we would want after all the updates that we had done to it, um, making it more interactive and, and simplifying the scripts and all those types of things. Um, so now what we're doing is now that we've kind of proven out, at least to ourselves, um, if not to, to others, that we can um, deliver this educational content through an immersive experience and that improvements in that experience um, can, can improve over uh, in human delivery. Now what we want to do is test against our program itself. So we have this older version of our program that we're currently testing against an updated version of it to see is can we continue to improve these educational models and make them more interactive, um, make the, the educational delivery more effective um, and, and all of those types of things. So we, we, we just wrapped up the data collection on that and we're hoping to look at the data soon. Um, and so, so yeah, from our standpoint, there's uh, just a lot of things to, to look at, a lot of uh, applications, a lot of different populations to explore. Um, and, and so many uh, interesting avenues to go with this virtual technology. So what are some of those future directions? One is that, like I mentioned, adapting the program for specific populations. Right now, we're kind of just doing this broad kind of portion size energy density type training. Um, but there is a lot of potential to, uh, to use this towards specific populations, for example, um, populations with diabetes or with obesity. Um, with different eating disorders. Um, we could also even look at targeting this uh, type of educational material more specifically for specific cultures, uh, regional um, specifications, uh, looking into things like what if we change the avatar to male versus female or to have the uh, present um, from a diverse um, standpoint. And so, so there's lots of uh, uh, interesting directions to take that. One that we're working on and working to uh, obtain some funding for, though, is actually utilizing this within a clinic. So how does this work? How do clinicians see this um, integrating into their practices? Um, do they see it valuable? Is it, is it more of a headache? Does it provide them you know, with information that's utilizable for them? those types of things, right? And so that goes to the next point, which is providing clinicians with actual feedback. Like what kind of metrics do they wanna see on the back end? Um, if they have a, a patient go through this program, what would they wanna know at the end? What would be most helpful for them to, to then help the patient, right? Um, digital deployment's another big one for us. That's very scalable. It's not always um, feasible for everybody to uh, meet with the dietitian. Um, or have access to those types of things. So we're looking at um, partnering with programs uh, like our extension office here to see like, can, is digital deployment valid in rural populations where it's very difficult to even get to medical care, like those types of things. Um, and then of course we wanna update our modules and expand the content. So right now we're really focused on portion size and energy density, just as the material that we adopted, but we see so many potential ways to go with this with other different types of um, material, right? Different dietary patterns, um, different experiences, different um, 
content issues that are important for specific populations. So I left a, a few minutes for, for talking about anything if, uh, if that's of interest, but um, I guess I just mentioned at the end that, you know, like we're a very collaborative group and we're always open to, you know, sharing what we have um, developed already, um, talking about expanding it or utilizing it um, in different ways. And so uh, if anybody's ever interested, please just reach out and we can uh, chat about all of that stuff as well, so. Thank you so much for sharing your work. I, it was really neat to see the different possibilities within the VR environment. Um, as people have questions, if you can put those into the Q&A area. Um, a couple of questions. Um, one person asked, are you suggesting that participants can learn knife skills using the VR program? Yeah. Some and we've had this comment a couple of times, not specific to knife, but different kitchen skills, right? Um, so there's actually, if you're interested, there is a, a commercial program that is like a, a cooking, it's to teach cooking and it's very gamified and stuff like that. Um I think that it is possible, yes. Um there's there's some caveats to that, right? Because um in this case, when they summon the knife, there's actually not a knife in their hand, it's a controller, right? So it's still just the controller. So if you're gonna get like really technical fine knife skills, I'd say probably not. Um, but more what we have discussed with people is food safety type issues, right? So you could have your virtual knife where you're cutting something. Um, so let's say you cut a, a, some raw chicken, right? And then you move it and you start to cut um, vegetables or fruit or something like that. like. That would be a really great um, place for VR to come in because it would be able to alert you, right? Like, hey, you just cut this, that you and and you could like show them like, oh, there's bacteria that's been moved from your chicken over here, and so um, there there's a lot of opportunities for that type of stuff. Um, in terms of the knife that we had, you know, we did have varying opinions. We we worked a lot to like get the cutting motion down very, so it felt natural. I think what we landed on most people felt like they were actually cutting through something um, because in the virtual world, there's there, there's no resistance in the real world when you're cutting, right? But in the virtual world, you see the knife like bounce off the object. And, and so you kind of have that same response. And so there's some amount of like applying pressure to get the cut to go through or just like sliding through like butter <laughs> kind of a thing. Um, but yeah, so most people felt like the knife was, uh, was, uh, Felt felt natural, I guess. It, that's that's what they they said. Um, but yeah, I think fine knife skills is a different different idea, though. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Thinking through the food safety as a, a learning module in a VR environment. Um, another question, and I may have heard you wrong. In the beginning, did you say that they can eat in immersive virtual restaurants? So, <laughs> so we do have a new module that we're working on right now. We we just submitted a paper on like the concept of it. Um, but yeah, so new uh, virtual technologies allow you to um, mix like real world um, aspects with uh, virtual aspects. They So the term in the industry is called mixed reality. And a lot of people had done it the reverse way where you put on like Google glasses, right? And so you'd see your normal world and then they could make 3D objects appear, right? We're doing it the opposite way of that where you're in a 3D world, but we are able to bring in actual um, food. So like you can actually see the food in front of you, but then when you look up, it's all a virtual world. So oh, there's a lot of uh, good, 
crazy possibilities with that. <laughs> so you can see the real food and you're seeing the virtual yeah. environment. Which is one of the main limitations of our previous work is like we were really like you can really only do like food selection behaviors because you can't consume in the virtual world. But in this case, now we can do both. Right. So like you could do food selection tasks, then you could bring them actual food and have them consume it while still immersed in the in the virtual world. So um, there's yeah, going to be a huge amount of possibilities moving forward in, in this space. So. Yeah, and thinking through the logistics when you were doing, you know, during the pandemic, when you were having people complete the research, were you sending them VR glasses or how was that working? Yeah, so I mentioned that we had access to some databases that had been used for some non-nutrition uh, VR studies. And so we had a, essentially like a list of people that had um, access to headsets. Um, so whether okay. they own them or not, so that the headsets that we are you so you saw I maybe maybe not, but if you look back at the the VR buffet, it's like very high quality. So that we call like a ultra realistic or hyper realistic virtual experience where um, it looks very true to life. Um, and then you notice with the Ivan stuff, it it looks a like a lot more cartoony. <laughs> And the reason for that is we designed this for cheaper headsets. So, so the VR buffet, we're using headsets that are like $3,000 and we're running it on computers that cost $5,000 because you need like high-end graphics cards and like all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and so that's not, at, but with the Ivan stuff, we're thinking more realistic, like for scalability purposes, right? And so that's designed for um, meta headsets, um, which cost like $200. So they're, they're much more reasonable. And in fact, some of the stuff that we developed, you could do, um, there's a way to use your cell phone as a VR device. And so in theory, you could also use even like cheaper, lower end technology to run like the Ivan program. And so that was another goal is like saying, what could a clinic reasonably afford well, they might be able to afford a $200 headset that doesn't require any extra computers or anything like that, but they're unlikely to, you know, invest $10,000 into a system that may or may not work. So, <laughs> yeah, no, much more, much more affordable for the average person or the average clinic. Um, as you're talking with um, dietitians, are they pretty receptive to using this kind of technology? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't want to like paint a broad brush across everybody, but most, I think most people and all the educators that we had evaluate the program, I think they immediately see the potential for it. Right. And I think even what we have is very underdeveloped for, to where it needs to go. Um, but, but they, yeah, you can, you can immediately see like, oh, I could offload a lot of my, the time I spend just repeating the same, you know, when I worked in clinic, settings that was one of my biggest gripes was just like yeah i've been over the same powerpoint like a hundred times now <laughs> like how am i supposed to have energy so it gives you kind of like the standardized thing and for us like improving the like interactivity was important that that finding is like not always super exciting to people they're like yeah it was more interactive but it's like yeah but that's important right because it keeps people engaged and excited about it without you having to invest a lot of energy <laughs> in being excited about delivering that educational content you know and from an educator side you know you know how that can be where you've taught the same course 10 times and it's like okay i have to come in and still be super excited about this kind of a thing so um to us that was a big deal i think so 
Yeah. Another question, um, what specific environments beyond office locations do you visualize the use of the VR program? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, um, I mean, obviously we have the buffet environment and then the other one uh, that you saw just kind of briefly was we're designing like restaurant environments, right? But in actuality, there's there's a lot of research in the VR space about like moving people into different spaces. So I think maybe a little bit more tangentially related to nutrition is the sensory scientists do this a lot with um, when they're testing out different foods. So they'll put people in different immersive environments. So when they're testing like the sensory properties of like a beer, for example, they'll put them in a bar environment and then they'll move them to a beach environment. And then, you know, like, so they'll do these kinds of things. And so I think that's a really open-ended question um, in nutrition is like, where would people learn about nutrition better, right? Could you put them in an office environment, a school environment, uh, a farm environment? Like where might they be more, more or less receptive to some of these things? Um, and, and then what could you change about that environment to help them become more receptive? Um, so those are kind of like broad questions, I think generally with VR um, as well. So. That's really interesting to think about just the all of the options available as far as where you could put people to learn about food. Yeah. And I guess I would highlight again that from like a research standpoint, um, it's very interesting because you still maintain the control of the laboratory environment. Right. So in some of those like virtual and like virtual bar environments and stuff like they're they're very difficult because they have to like rent out a bar and bring all hundred participants in at the same time to make it worth the, the while and like all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, whereas like, yeah, so, you know, we can do that without having to do all that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's really neat. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing your work with us in this educational material. Um, at this point, I can hand it back to Rachel. Very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Uh, just a reminder, when I close the webinar, there's a short survey. We appreciate your feedback on this session. Um, and then watch for your email follow-up on Wednesday with a link to the recording, the handout, as well as the CEU certificate. Uh, then we will see you back next Monday uh, for the Journal Club again. And as always, the list of SNEB webinars are up on the website and conference registration is open now. Also, um, the earliest or the, the, the greatest discounts are for anyone who registers before May 1st. Um, so be sure to check that out. I know um, the Digital Technology Division is planning uh, a Digitech playground again for the conference. So um, if this is a topic that interests you, they'll There'll be more things to discuss um, at SNEB this year. So thank you all. And thank you again, Dr. Masterson.